no other industrialised country has yet promised to help developing countries with the loss and damage they're suffering from the changing climate. Uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon said that she was going to do that. She was going to say this is not just a grant, it's not like a voluntary act, perhaps something that sounds like it's a piece of charity. It's more like compensation, it's more like paying a debt that we owe. Welcome to the Renew Our World podcast. Renew Our World is a global movement of Christians who believe that since we are truly image bearers of God, we should act like it, living out love for one another in actions and in truth. Since we are image bearers of God, we won't stand by while our neighbours are trapped in poverty and we won't stay idle as creation is left untended and inequality is left to fester. In this podcast, we're going to go on a journey together of discovering a theology of creation care. We'll be discussing the latest in climate news, chatting with industry leaders, theologians and practitioners and hearing from some of our incredible partners who are working on the ground. Join us this season as we learn about creation care and what we can do in our own lives to play part in a much bigger restorative story. So hello and welcome back to the Renew Our World podcast. Uh, we're into well into season two now of the Renew Our World podcast and we're really glad to have you uh, for what is our post-cup sort of debrief conversation. Um, we are now sort of a week after COP has just finished or sort of a couple of days after it's finished um, as COP sort of overran into last uh, the last weekend. But uh, as we sort of summarise what's been agreed at the conference and maybe have a little think about what happens next and where do we go forward, um, I've got some, some guests with me. I've got a couple of guests uh, this week. So normally I just have one or two people um, involved in the, in the conversation. We've got a bit more of a round table with us today, although my table is still quite square because I'm still in my spare bedroom, but we'll endeavour to have a virtual round table on this one if we can. And uh, so I've got a couple of colleagues. I've got um, Sue Wilshire, who works with me in Tearfund as well, uh, in the policy team. And we've got Julia Kendall, who also works in the policy team. And then we've got Ben Niblett, who's the Renewal World Coordinator, and then we've also got Megan Hermes, who works with me on, on Renewal World um, comms and communications as well. And uh, yeah, guys, you're very welcome to the, the, the latest um, episode of the Renewal World podcast. We're looking forward to chatting to you guys today. So let's, let's move into our, our first question um, and our first sort of, sort of overview. And I'm just wondering, just, just before we go into maybe the more technical questions about you know what was agreed and this was agreed and that was agreed and this wasn't agreed um i wonder what are your overall observations about cop 26 and maybe some of your your highlights and lowlights of the of the conference um and i'm going to go to um ben i'm going to go to you um on that one first what are you what are your what are your sort of main takeaways from cop 26 um i think my highlight was the big march so i love big marches and this was a brilliant one it was just overwhelming. It was just so encouraging to see more than 100,000 people out on the streets, especially when the streets were as wet and windy as they were that morning in Glasgow. And there was such a huge range of people. And the atmosphere was so strong and uh, so encouraging. Yeah, I really loved that. And almost as much, I loved the, the worship and prayer service we had beforehand. I thought that was, that really inspired me and I, I, I will watch I'll come back and watch that again and again, I think, over the next few years, just to remember, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So that kind of outside the conference, be, feeling like we're part of a bigger movement than I've ever felt we were part of before. That was awesome. 
Um, did you want a low light as well? Yeah, go on. Give us a low light as well. Well, it's just how annoying it is trying to get an agreement with 200 countries. I mean, it's, it's really difficult and frustrating. And that's not surprising. Sometimes my family of five can argue for a long time and find it hard to agree something quite trivial. So it's not surprising. It's difficult, but it's frustrating because it's so important. And yet they have so many words and so many disagreements. And this is just too urgent for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe Julia, what yeah, what were your thoughts? So maybe for context for people, a lot of us were in Glasgow. Some of us were um, sort of inside where the, the conference centre was. Some of us were, were outside marching and um, getting involved in, in other sort of events. Um, but Julia, Julia was sort of like, if you can imagine um, the last couple of Bond movies, you've got um, Q sort of, um, you know, you know, hooked up to various different devices and screens and, you know, sort of, we had an earpiece connected to, to Julia to kind of say, Julia, what's happening in, in the negotiations um, in this sort of technical aspect? And uh, so, Julia, you were sort of um, the brains of the operation, I think, in a lot of ways, you know, sort of keeping an eye on what's been announced. But um, from, yeah, from your perspective, what, what sort of things stuck out for you? Yeah, that feels like a... a a higher definite definition of my experience of COP. Um, it was definitely a very a very pandemic experience. So being working from my study um, all on screen for the whole time. But I think what really stayed with me, I didn't know that it's a highlight or a low light, but it was just hearing the messages again and again from world leaders, um, particularly from the countries that are most affected by this, so from the Marshall Islands, from Palau, just hearing um, the same message again and again of how important it is to be facing this crisis, the fact that they're already facing it. Um, I still remember the words of the president of Palau from the first day where he talked about um, how he said it would be better to bomb us than to leave us to this slow death. And I think that was just a really sobering experience to hear that. Um, so it's kind of a low light, but it also just hearing that again and again and seeing so many different people from around the world really talking about this crisis also felt uh, special and important, um, but sobering at the same time. Yeah, cheers, Julia. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? It was sort of definitely the, one of the key threads, I think, listening to people give the, you know, sort of speeches at the plenary sessions was the developing countries talking about how um, how much of a catastrophe this is going to be and is already for them. And then hearing from the developed countries continue to, well, I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but it, it's, it, did fe- it still feels a little bit like they're trying to pull the drawbridge up a little bit, aren't they, in terms of, um, you know, using fossil fuels to, to, to continue to, to develop in that sort of sense. Um, but yeah, more, more on that maybe a bit later in the, in the podcast. Um, and Sue, I'm going to go to you on this one as well. Yeah, what was your, what was your highlight slash lowlight? Um, a, bit, a bit similar to what Julia said. Um, one speaker that really stood out to me was the Barbados um, Prime Minister. Um, and she similar, similarly reminded us of what the cost is of like these climate disasters you know, they are measured in lives and livelihoods. And just, you know, she's just really powerful speaker. Um, I, I will add like another highlight was the near doubling of countries that signed on to a clean energy statement during COP, it wasn't quite doubling, but you know, ballpark in that area. So that was really encouraging that countries were like, actually, yes, let's let's make that commitment. And I, 
we can talk about the details of that later. Um, and I think a low light, I was really expecting some surprise finance announcement, like, hey, China, UK and US have found the 100 billion and <laughs> you know, like even committed to it or, you know, something that would just really move things along financially and that didn't happen. So that was disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Megan, over over to you as well. Yeah, what were your what were your sort of um, your takeaways from COP? Yeah, I think mine kind of combine a bit of what Ben and Julia were saying. I think for me, being around so many people that just really care was just so like encouraging and motivating. And I think a- activism and campaigning can be really isolating, and especially in the past like eighteen months, and can also feel a bit like you're like bashing your head against a brick wall or shouting into a void a bit. And just that reminder that there are so many individuals and groups and organisations all rallying around the same cause and everyone really passionately cares just felt really like heartwarming, even though mm-hmm. it simultaneously felt heartbreaking that we all had to be there doing that. Um, and I think that was the low light. So also being in the place where people had the power to make things happen and things are still not happening. That was definitely the low light. I think hearing the, like literally just hearing the pain in people's voices and some of those addresses of like the really powerful address from the Tuvalu minister who gave it from the from the ocean like about the rising sea levels and yeah just hearing people literally some of the world like leaders begging for for change and just wondering how how we could be in this place and still not have the the change that we really wanted to see um yeah so being there was both galvanizing and encouraging and sad (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for that, Meg. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? There was in inside the negotiating sort of space, things felt felt a little stagnant, but outside it I felt like there was a lot of movement and a lot of momentum and a lot of certainly a lot of passion for sure in terms of the different civil society organizations and um the two marches that happened over the space of, of COP. Um yeah, I guess I suppose it's coming to the the more policy side of things and what was agreed it, or what was agreed even at the um, at the conference. So we we came into COP twenty six on a trajectory towards sort of a more devastating, you know, two point seven degrees of warming. Um, and so I'm wondering what what's the sort of trajectory like now because we've had some some agreements at COP. Um, so and I'm wondering as well what what are the sort of specific actions that were agreed um, that we think maybe might have lowered the traje- trajectory. Um, ever so slightly in terms of in terms of this this COP twenty six, um, I'm going to hand it over to to um, Sue and Julia for this one. Yeah, so um, countries are required to submit national climate plans, and so before we came into COP, as you said, we were if you looked at all of them, we were headed for two point seven degrees, and then a number of countries submitted updated or new plans just before or in the first few days of COP. That includes. China, New Zealand, Argentina, and a few other countries. And if you look at them, that means that we're now on a trajectory of 2.4 degrees. So obviously that has shifted the dial a bit, um, but 2.4 is still really far from 1.5, which is the agreed target that world leaders have committed to, and also a much safer level for the kinds of, um, yeah, the communities on the front line of the crisis. Um, But I think what's also interesting is that the promises made throughout COP have put hope on the table for um, reaching below two degrees. So um, that's if you look at all of the promises that were made throughout the the two weeks. So as well as those national climate commitments, it includes 
um, India committing to net zero by 2070, um, over 100 countries committed to tackle methane, which is a really powerful greenhouse gas, so to reduce that by 30% by 2030, and over 100 countries which represent about 85% of global fo forest cover, they also committed to, um, to stop and reverse the effects of deforestation. So if you look at all of those promises, the hope of below two degrees is on the table now where it wasn't before COP. Um, but obviously at the moment, those are just words um, and we mm -hmm. need them to be turned into action. Um, and obviously below two degrees is much better than 2.7, but it's still far off 1.5, which is where we really need to get to. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Julia. Um, maybe just one slight follow on question I have for that, because I guess people listening to this podcast, some are probably coming from a technical mindset and some probably aren't. Some are probably just interested in, in the conversation. Um, and I think, you know, net zero, I think we're at a place where where that makes sense. You know, we're sort of each country setting a date where, you know, their level of emissions is sort of um, always in equilibrium in terms of the amount, you know, released and the, and the you know, reforestation and the impacts that can have and um, and all that, all that kind of stuff. But in terms of the the climate plans that countries submit, sort of before just before COP and at COP, um, what what are they what are they like? Do you, do you know in terms of the technical aspect what what information might be in those sort of plans? So it really depends on on each country, and obviously having a plan doesn't mean that it's good. And so um, for some countries, those plans are aligned with a 1.5 degree future, but for some other countries, they're more akin to kind of two, three, four degrees. And so what we really need is, uh, is high emitting countries in particular to be strengthening those plans. And that's what they did commit to at COP was to come back next year with stronger plans. Um, to, and we really need those to be aligned with yeah, a 1.5 degree future. And I'll just add to that. Some of the, the the plans, as you said, really vary, but they will often talk about the energy sector and the plans. To, you know, what energy uses do they envisage in the coming years? Um, and um, you know, the transport sector, like it would look at where the emissions are coming from and then what they're doing about tackling it. For some countries, for the lower income countries, they might do two different scenarios and saying if we get sufficient climate finance support we could actually deliver x and we could make okay. this a yeah. quicker but without it this is what we can achieve this is the plan yeah okay that's interesting yeah that's interesting that they sort of um give a scenario a and b um yeah and sort of moving moving i guess towards um another question then in, in terms of um fossil fuels i guess one of the biggest issues uh, that we saw at COP26, which is, I guess it's now been called the, the Glasgow Climate Pact, which is which is what the agreement, um, the agreement that all the countries signed up to at the very end of COP, that's what it's sort of been called now. Um, and I suppose in there we had a weakening on the commitment on coal and uh, that was sort of led by, by China and India. Um, I wonder maybe, again, maybe soon, Julie, if you wanted to go into a bit more in depth in terms of what happened there? Because I think people, that sort of seems to be the headline that has gone around the world and in terms of maybe some of the media reporting. Um, but also, I think it's probably worthwhile just stopping to have a look as well at what other agreements relating to fossil fuel were reached at a COP26. Because I know there was there was some good progress in other, other areas apart from coal, I guess. Sure, I can start on that. Um, 
Yeah, so in terms of the, uh, I mean, there was about three or four iterations that we saw the negotiating, negotiating text that was the final outcome, and it did get gradually weaker. But on, on a positive front, it's the first time that fossil fuels was made, and coal specifically. And um, the, as a UK presidency, consigning coal to the history books was like a real headline that Alex Sharma really wanted to achieve. I wouldn't say he achieved that, but... Um, good step towards it you know and and you know quite a sizable step in, in some ways it, it changed from phase out to phase down again well what does that mean you know you can interpret phase down in a different way you know how fast you know is that mostly at the behest of India but also China um but you know China put it sorry India put its cards on the table fairly early on and said you know, again, we can decarbonise quicker, but we need financial support for that. And they named, you know, quite high figures um, and claiming that, you know, the West has really caused climate change. And yet we're not fast tracking out of fossil fuels quick enough, you know. Um, so so the, there was that sort of politics at play, but it's in there and now we can build on that. Um, even though it was weak and it's disappointing, and we say, okay, you, well, you've talked about you are phasing down, like coal is on its way out, so we'll hold them to account on that. And as you mentioned, there's some other commitments. So on the sort of coal front, about 40 countries or just over committed to you know turn the taps off on coal, both at home and like financial and other support internationally by 2030. Um, so, you know, it was good, given it's the most dirtiest of fossil fuels, really, it should be more than the 40 countries that, that could have, you know, really been the whole of the conference. Um, and unfortunately, there was backtracking, and I know Poland, I think, was one of those countries that within a few hours said, oh, actually, we're not going to do it by 2030, we'll stick with doing it by 2049. So that was really disappointing, but there's some progress there on coal, that should have happened years ago. Um, and then going more progressively than that, not just ending support to coal inter internationally, but all fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas, nearly 40 countries by the end of COP um, signed this clean energy statement, which is what I mentioned at the beginning. Those, those numbers nearly doubled during the COP itself. It started off about 22. Um, yeah, so they, they will commit to ending coal, oil and gas support internationally for overseas by the end of next year and that I know there's an intention to keep growing that even more over, over the next year um, then the most um, ambitious announcement was the sort of formal launch of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance which Costa Rica and Denmark headed up there's 12 nations behind that four eight were the sort of core members including Ireland and Wales are on there and um, so these are sort of at the nation level and um, you know, they really want to phase out and have no new oil and gas. So that's the most progressive thing that we saw. Um, and obviously, it's a very small membership at the moment. But that, that's the thing that really needs to grow as well. Yeah, that's good. Good to good to hear. Yeah, it was, I was particularly, obviously, you know, I was keeping an eye on what, what Ireland might do when they were there. And it was interesting seeing them signing up to, to that commitment. Um particularly as I think there's been some conversations in Ireland about, you know, if there's large amounts of oil or gas off the, the West Coast in the Atlantic Ocean, should we, you know, do what Norway does and put that into a sovereign wealth fund? And um, it looks like the government are saying, you know, 
if we if we find any more fossil fuel reserves out there, we, we won't be tapping into them, um, which is good to good to hear and good to see. Um, and I guess, yeah, we've mentioned a little bit about the sort of climate finance side of things. Um, and it seems like maybe that area was sort of the least successful, maybe I would say. And maybe I'm wrong on that. Do, do correct me if, if I'm wrong on that. But it seems like perhaps that was the area that was least successful in terms of the policy the policy side of things. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it is fair to say that it was disappointing that there was so little progress on this, especially when this was clearly one of the key issues for countries and communities that are at the front line of this crisis. Um, so when we talked you know, at the start about hearing from people, this was a key message that you need to deliver on the finance to help us to adapt to this crisis. Um, maybe it's helpful for context that um, all the way back in 2009, um, kind of wealthy nations committed to deliver 100 billion a year from 2020 um, for communities and countries to meet their climate targets, like you mentioned, but also to um, adapt to the impacts of climate change that are happening, like sea level rise. Um, and that 100 billion is has still not been met. So it's a long overdue promise. Um, one good thing that did come out was that um, at COP, they committed to double the amount of that finance that's going to go to adaptation. So um, some of that's for what we call mitigation. So that's uh, getting on track for, for climate targets and, and cutting emissions. But um, the finance for adaptation really makes a difference for those who are already feeling the effects of, of, of the climate crisis. So that was positive. Um, it's still falls full short of what we were hoping for. So um, by doubling it, it's now about 40% of that finance when it should be about 50-50. Um, so that was a, a piece of good news, but unfortunately um, that was kind of it on the climate finance side of things. And um, you know, a report came out before COP which showed that it's unlikely that that 100 billion will be met until 2023 at the earliest. And that is so late for communities that are already feeling this and so late on what has already been promised. And mm. we really didn't see an assurance that that is going to be delivered earlier than that. So that's really disappointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess it's probably that, um, that sort of letdown, I guess, it probably sparked a lot of the more inspiring pieces that we heard then in those plenaries from some of those developing countries, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, I think in the last few days, um, the negotiator from Malawi talked about, about oh, no, sorry, it's from Kenya. He talked about, you know, uh, we bleed when it rains and we cry when it doesn't. You know, that is the reality of the crisis for, for them already. And th this finance is key, but it's still not forthcoming. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that, Julia. Great. And I guess turning our attention away from the sort of negotiations a little bit more and thinking about the wider climate movement um, and, and zoning in on where Renewal World is and sort of our sort of um, place, I guess, within the, the climate movement. Um, I guess, Ben, I'm wondering what, what were the highlights from the Renewal World perspective at COP? Because I think, I think we could probably say that it was a even though on the negotiating side, it was disappointing in some areas, but I think from the newer world side and from the wider civil society engagement side, it was relatively successful, I would, I would think. Um, but yeah, what, what, what were some of the highlights from, from the from newer world? Yeah, there were lots of great things that, um, that really encouraged me and moved me at the time, and we'll go on doing that as, as I remember them over this year. Um, I think top of those is take this idea that we could take the voices of the front lines of people who are really at the sharp end of climate change 
who, as Cookie always says, are living lightly, uh, but are feeling the weight of climate change heavily. So we can take their voices to COP, to the places where the powerful people gather, and we can get those voices across and hopefully influence the decisions that get made. That's what we're trying to do. Um, and in some ways, it's a very optimistic thing to try and do, and it takes a lot of prayer. Um, but we did manage to do it, even in COVID. So um, Hockabed Solano from Panama had to quarantine uh, for a week in a UK hotel before she could come to COP, but she did, and it worked. And when she was there, she did a lot of great things. She was working with the indigenous peoples organizations, and that's a really strong and powerful network. They did a lot of good negotiating together. They made some good plans. But maybe my favorite out of the things she did was she got to meet Nicola Sturgeon, who's the first minister of Scotland. And that was just a really powerful meeting. And it always reminds me that um, ministers and people like that, I'm sometimes tempted to see as machines, as part of the system, but they are people as well. So uh, I remember flippantly saying, we're trying to reach their hearts if they have hearts. And of course they have hearts, they are people. Uh, they are also calculating the political odds, but they are human as well. And this meeting really showed that. So Hockabed was able to say, tell the story about the islands where her people live off the coast of Panama and say, the seas are rising around us. It's getting harder to make a living. Sometimes there are floods. Sometimes we can't get ashore uh, to the mainland as we used to be able to do. And she was able to tell that story very powerfully to Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister of Scotland, who is in a position where she's not formally part of the talks, but she can still influence them. And uh, so Hockabed spoke to her, she listened carefully. Hockabed gave her a bead necklace that, uh, that was traditional beadwork from the Kuna people. That was really moving, it's a beautiful picture. And Nicola Sturgeon did listen, and after the meeting, um, she did something that was both a beautiful gesture and, and a smart piece of politics, I guess. So uh, no other industrialized country has yet promised to help developing countries with the loss and damage they're suffering from the changing climate. Uh, and Nicola Sturgeon said that she was going to do that. She was going to say, this is not just a grant. It's not like a voluntary act, perhaps something that sounds like it's a piece of charity. It's more like compensation. It's more like paying a debt that we owe. So she was able to say that, which no other developed country leader has said yet. And she was able to commit a million pounds, which is not that much in the scheme of things, but it's still a lot of money. And then after the meeting with Hockerbed, she doubled that amount to two million pounds, which again, it, it's gonna need far more money than that, but it's a good start. Yeah, so I guess that was a moment that kind of crystallized what we can do together for me. Yeah, that's great, Ben. That was really, really encouraging to hear. Um... Yeah, I think I, I particularly enjoyed working with um, Promise and Cookie as well. And we, we anybody who's listened to the podcast, know we, we did a podcast episode at COP there last week as well. Um, do feel free to listen in on that. And it was just, it was, it was great to have, yeah, people like Promise, Cookie, and also uh, Charles uh, from from Malawi. And obviously you've mentioned, mentioned Hakobet as well, but Promise, I think, did a, did a fantastic job at, some some media interviews as well. He was on, I think he did a piece on Sky News, and uh, also did some uh, gave gave it gave a talk. I think with with Sue at, at a side event for, um, uh, yeah. So that was that was that was fantastic as well to sort of see, um, yeah, like those those people who you've mentioned bring bring them to those corridors of power and let them speak, 
uh, truth to power and speak um, justice to power. Um, yeah, it was really it was really encouraging to, to see him do that. And uh, we got some good petition handlings as well, didn't we? Because we've been people who listen to the podcast may have signed the uh, the Reset Twenty One petition on the on the website and in various other places, but we managed to get a few a few countries on our hit list, and we managed to hand over the petition and, and have some conversations as well. Um, I think there was a somewhat fruitful conversation maybe with Australian delegation, and we were able to hand over some policy asks from Tier Fund Australia, who people might uh, who probably probably who listen to this podcast probably know of Tier Fund Australia, um, or t- used to be Tier Australia. But yeah, there's a couple of other countries we managed to do some hand-ins. Was there, was there any any highlights there from from your side? Yeah, it was really good how many countries we managed to hand in the petition to. So we did it to the overall uh, the secretariat who run the COP. Uh, we did it. Uh, we hand we got to hand it into Alok Sharma, the president of the COP. We got to hand it into the UK to senior delegates from the UK and Australia and several other countries, and to the ministers who were in charge from Kenya and Malawi and Zambia. Yeah, we got a good selection of people and some of them had time for really helpful, interesting conversations. I was really struck how fed up some of the delegates from the Global South were with, uh, particularly on climate finance. That really came across very strongly. Um, yeah, so it, again, it's not just taking people's voices in person, it's being able to represent all the people who signed the Reset 21 petition and hand that over well and then have a conversation off the back of it. That was powerful. It's funny because in many of these countries, it's really difficult to get to meet people that senior in normal times. But in COP, you're all there together. I think there were 39,000 people at COP or something like that. And basically, imagine 39,000 people all living in the same huge airport. It was like that. So you do get to come across people. It's just easier to get hold of them. It's much easier to do it there than it is almost anywhere else. Um, Yeah, and we were able to harness that. Actually, the other thing that, that was good was it's just so international. You're able to meet campaigners from lots of other countries as well. And we had lots yeah. of really great, fruitful conversations with people swapping tips and saying, this is how we've managed to motivate the movement in my country and sharing ideas with each other. That was really powerful too. And I think a lot of those connections will stand us in good stead for a good few years. Yeah, 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 definitely. I'm not sure if I should be saying this uh, in a public way, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, my... <laughs> My 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 favourite moment of COP was uh, being asked to to leave the um, well I, I won't say which country because then that might be crossing a line but uh, one of the particular countries that we were targeting we turned up at their uh, pavilion to hand in a petition and we sort of got through the the first round of security and we said look we'd like to present this you know this is what it is and they said okay let me get somebody um, we got to a second person and we said this is what we're doing you know is there somebody from the delegation that we can have this petition into. They went and got a third person, but the third person then told us to quickly leave and that we were not to come back. <laughs> so I think that alongside um, being in a queue for lunch with um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Justin Welby, and introducing him to, to Cookie and Jacobed um, as we queued for lunch and discussing the finer points of um, eating certain meats was was another, another highlight. Again, I won't mention which... Which meat um, it might be, because that might—that's probably not. That's for another, another, another. That's for a different podcast. Um, but yeah, so moving, moving, moving swiftly on to another in another direction. Um, Meg, I wanted to chat to you a little bit about the sort of climate movement um, as a whole, and I think you know we've seen how COP. We've, we've talked with the delegations. We've talked about the policy side, and um, 
yeah, I wonder how, how would you, in terms of contrasting that to what was happening outside and happening on the streets of Glasgow, particularly thinking about the, the, the global day of action that happened um, on the Saturday in between COP, and then also there was a Fridays for Future march uh, the day before, which, uh, which is led by that sort of the movement that Greta Thunberg has, has started. And yeah, do you think that this COP has sort of galvanised that movement even more? Um, what was what was it like at those some of those marches? Did you did you feel that there was a real sense of the movement growing? Yeah, so the voice of the streets, <laughs> as someone who was not in in the blue zone but just just outside um, for the duration of COP, I think. Something that struck me was that there was a lot of talks about ex- exclusivity at this COP. I think there were a few criticisms um, thrown their way at, um, yeah, various things about being exclusive and, you know, the fact that um, representatives from big oil and gas organisations made up the biggest delegations. Um, and those aren't the voices we needed to be listening to. But outside of that zone, it felt really inclusive. So that was like the biggest contrast. Like it felt incredibly inclusive. Um, just in the streets of Glasgow and all the stunts that were happening and both the marches. I can't remember the figure, Sash can't find the figure of how many people turned up to the youth march, but I think it. Um, I got quite emotional watching them come past. I mean, Indigenous activists led the way right at the front. You know, the youth just know, they, they were like, these are the people that need to be leading us. They're the people at the front. Um, they were the people representing the march, like carrying the banners right at the forefront of the march. And it just went on and on and on. And there were more people than I, yeah, I could believe. And there were there were some really tiny kids out with their parents, but they'd made their own signs and like incredibly creative signs as well. And it was just really emotional to see, um, yeah, like young teenagers that quite clearly, they weren't just doing it to bunk a day off school. Like they put real time and effort into their banners and posters and they're really there because they cared. And then on the Saturday, the Global Day of Action, I think we do have a number for that. That was over 100,000 people turned up. And I think the fact that they turned up, I mean, we were expecting numbers of 50,000. So to have double that turn up in the least favourable weather conditions, I think really says something. It wasn't just people thinking, oh, I'll head down for a laugh, you know, join this protest. That'd be fun. Like it was, it was, it was really cold (laughs) and really wet. Oh, biodegradable signs for biodegrading before you can even set off like um <laughs> it really was you know intense weather I think quite a few of it, like hardcore campaigners were like I'd really rather be inside with a cup of coffee but actually we all knew that it was way more important that we march and that we we know that this is like the least of people's problems um a bit of bad weather on a day of a march um uh and I think so both those marches to me just showed how much like creativity and passion and energy there is within the like within the movement. And I think I think people expected people to come away from COP and were maybe worried that that people, especially young people, would come away from COP really quite disheartened or disenfranchised and would perhaps kind of fall away a bit. But I think it I think it's done the opposite really. I think it's kind of increased a sense of not personal responsibility in terms of, you know, it's on us to change our behaviours, but actually it's a, actually sometimes we can't rely on world leaders or people to make the decisions that we need them to make. So we need to all be part of movements. We need to join civil society groups. We need to keep putting pressure on them because it makes a difference. Um, I think, yeah, there was this expectation that it would discourage and dishearten, but I think it's actually done a lot more to galvanise and and organise people more than anything else. I think there's more resilience than perhaps people even within the movement give ourselves credit for. Um, 
I think like just this week, we've seen like the Stop Cambo campaign, like Nicola Sturgeon previously was very much towing the line um, on whether she would come out in disagreement. And now she's come out in firm disagreement of it. And, you know, that's there's a huge movement and campaign behind that. So, yeah, I think we're going to continue to see more and more people joining movements and joining organisations and campaigns that are doing stuff rather than rather than just get discouraged. Yeah, thanks for that, Meg. I feel like that brings us to a nice sort of segue to um, Ben. I hope you don't mind me maybe asking you this, but on your on your train ride home, you met um, the COP president, uh, Alec Sharma, and had a chat with him, and he had some some kind words to say for civil society groups, I think. Yes, that was a strange conversation. I, I just saw him sitting at first class, and I thought, I've got to go and grab a copy of my petition and hand it to him and then have a little chat. And he... I don't know who was more tired. It was probably him, really. But I was absolutely shattered as well. So <laughs> neither of us were at our best. But he did say that, yes, uh, they were very aware of the voice of civil society and they were feeling that pressure uh, as the presidency in the UK and internationally. And, uh, yeah, he encouraged us to keep that up um, in as many countries as we can manage it. Uh, now, we're not doing that because he's told us to. We're doing it because it's what we were, we're called to. But it's good to hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hope next time uh, I meet him, I will be a little less dishevelled. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, at two weeks post-cop, or, or yeah, two weeks of cop, and then a couple of days afterwards, it's always, um, I don't know, it's like getting back from a summer festival or something. Just just maybe a little, little less mud, marginally less mud on your boots, probably. Um, but yeah, guys, I want to thank you for, for joining me today to, to chat about COP26. It was really... It was actually really great to hear so many different perspectives. Um, I really, really thank you for that. And I just want to actually finish with a prayer, actually. I think I think that's probably the, the most appropriate way of, um, of finishing this week's podcast. You know, we've, I'm conscious we, we, we lobby on policy, we campaign, we bring the voices of God's creation, you know, to, to these spaces. And um, I'm conscious that Renewal World is more than just a, a lobbying group. It is, it is people of faith. Um, lobbying it is people of faith campaigning and uh, I think it's appropriate that we we sort of finish this episode um, in prayer if you guys would be happy to join me in that Um, yeah God we just we just thank you so much for the opportunity that we had at COP26 we thank you for partnering with your your plans and purposes um, for that event and we now um, ask you God to continue to to move on the hearts of the policymakers who need to make brave decisions and we ask you to uh, by your holy spirit um, invigorate your church and invigorate um, your bride um, the church to to continue to raise its voice um, for justice lord in this in this in this sphere and in this context and um, may you continue to um, put us in the right places to do that and may we continue to be listening to to your voice and be guided in, in how we do that lord and we pray these things in, in your name. Amen. And yeah, that, that concludes this week's episode of the uh, Renewal Podcast. Please do check out some of our social media and have a look at some of those pictures that we've and videos that we took while we were there. Um, there's some, as, as Ben mentioned, some great photo, photos with Nicola Sturgeon and, and Jacob Ed, but there's other, other photos as well to have a look at and um, have a look on our website for some of the, for a, a Cop Roundup blog and also have a look at um, yeah, so Meg, Meg wrote a piece on the Global Day of Actions. Please, please check that out as well. And until then, 
uh, until the next time, we'll, uh, we'll see you anon. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Renew Our World podcast. To learn more about the Renew Our World campaign or to hear about some of the work that our partners are doing, make sure you jump on over to our website at renewourworld.net. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss a podcast episode again.